Hey guys, I don't know if you're like me, but I love Count the Dings and everything it has to offer. I just can't find everything I need. You know, I know about Cinephobe and I know about the mailbag and I know about Bomb, but that's all we do, right, I mean? No, we do so much more. What? Yeah, absolutely. If you sign up, patreon.com slash count the dings, you'll find a plethora of other content, fresh content, extended content, the OG pod overflow, the Cinephobe cold opens that we've taken and made their own thing to live only there the re-watchingtons bomb and it's full Ooh. and unadulterated cut early drops of cinephobe episodes and so much more said the og pod now is it new or is it old mace i'm glad you asked that it is a new incarnation mm-hmm. of the old og pod oh. so it's me zach trey Waz, tom i love those guys just like we always were going back to the true hoop days mm-hmm. we're recreating that magic recapturing it and putting it back out we're talking hoops we're talking pop culture and most importantly we're talking for 40 minutes for free mm-hmm. but then another specific patreon exclusive segment for every one of those episodes funny enough about that og pod you're getting tom and trey on mondays you're getting me and waz aka zosny on wednesdays Amin's floating in between i'm a floater you never know when you're gonna get Amin in those so you gotta listen to them all and what if i'm not sure what maze looks like because i've always thought he's a fat man with a fedora he's got a weird voice how can i see for myself what this maze character actually looks like it's crazy you don't know the answer to this mm. because it's the cinephobe pod youtube page what the ct5s on the cinephobe pod youtube page you can look at all of us you can get all the og pods on youtube too at count the dings one on youtube at cinephobe pod on youtube patreon.com slash count the dings gets you everything all in one feed you can link it to your spotify and now enjoy the show Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Tom, if you had to make a dish associated with a TV show, which would it be? I would love to eat the pizza from Breaking Bad. The, he kind of throws in a, in, a, in a huff, he throws a giant pizza pie on the roof of his house, like a pepperoni. And that in terms of scenes from a TV show that stand out in my head, that one reigns supreme. I'm going to go with The Wire. Lake trout. No lake, no trout. A fried fish sandwich, <laughs> Baltimore style. You put a little hot sauce on that. The lake trout. That is a Baltimore classic. This is Pack Your Knives. I'm Kevin Arnovitz. And I'm Tom Haverstrow. Tom, we're down to seven chefs. Episode 10, season six. Great rewatch. 
lot going on. Uh, we, we, as, as the aforementioned TV show, TV dinner challenge was sort of interesting. And, uh, and then, then we have a fun elimination as the chefs take over Tom Colicchio's restaurant, which is a kind of a big deal. Uh, but first, hello, hello, Natalie Portman too. Oh, yes. I, you know, I am bearing the lead. Um, it, Natalie Portman is, is, is a crucial player in this episode. Uh, let, let's start with TV dinner, or if you have general impressions about the state of the show right now, uh, I, I am all ears. Yeah, so when you look at this episode, Mike Isabella, of course, uh, big story there in the after uh, aftermath of this TV show. Um, but for me, this episode was all about Jen uh, because she's been in a rut. Uh, and watching her totally struggle in this episode while seeing Robin also struggle, but almost in like a carefree way. But Jen just seems so in her head and she's shaking as she's delivering, plating her dish. Um, and, you know, Natalie Portman is is so wonderful. Um, lots of dick jokes happening in this episode. So I, in terms of like... My favorite episodes of this season, I would say episode 10 here with Natalie Portman. It's up there. Mm. I, uh, You know, it's interesting how often Jen is a protagonist. One of the interesting things that I think happens, and it happens on a lot of episodes or rather a lot of seasons, I, although I think less than it used to, is the desire of the producers to really zero in on a couple of main characters and whether that's a function of their personality, which it generally is their potential uh, as a chef, their, their arc, you know, so, so like chefs that start without confidence and build confidence become over time. I think a, a character they'll zero in on just because it has a natural arc. Um, and, and it's, Jen's season in many ways, along with the Voltagios, just because of the novelty of brothers. But this episode sort of solidified that. I mean, this she she is, you know, there's best actors and then there's the supporting actors, you know, which are eligible in which category. She's a best actor slash actress. For sure. For sure. And, you know, I, uh, I felt for her on this episode in many ways, um, We'll start with the TV dinner. Um, the the challenge was sponsored was sponsored by TV Guide, I guess. Is that right? Oh, was it? It wasn't Swanson's. I forget. I don't know. Maybe, no, I think it was TV it. Guide. It, I didn't know TV Guide was still around. Indispensable publication before your time, by the way. Oh no, I, I definitely oh, remember. You, every time we went to Caldor or uh, CVS, we would always grab a TV Guide on the way out. You know, black for network, little gray for UHF stations. It was a very well-designed magazine. Like the content of it for its age was just – it was a very – it was kind of pleasant to look at in addition to getting your your TV because you had no guides. You just had to like crack open the TV guide to figure out what the hell's on, which is just hilarious that I am of age enough to remember. Like get the TV guide. Where the hell is the TV guide? Oh, great. We don't know what's on. Now we have to have to flip and – that's how you did it. And it was like an important publication. Like whoever got on the cover of the TV guide, that was like being on the cover of, you know, time magazine. Like every house had TV guide. I'm not every house, but I, I, I rarely knew a house that did not have TV guide. It is again, it is the guide. I mean, it was how you, it, it so indispensable. So did you eat TV dinners? You know, 
like we were kosher much of my childhood, but early on we weren't. And a little Salisbury steak, absolutely. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was kind of a one horse pony. I mean, one one, one trick pony there because I, yeah, you know, I didn't really veer off. You know, the chicken dinner with the the breading sticking to that tin foil, which actually oddly created this sort of extra gunk of oil. So definitely had the uh, you know, the, the fried chicken with a little corn. That was a popular one. But I don't oh, remember yeah. any above that. And then we went kosher and I, and, and like the new kitchen or whatever. And that ceased to be a thing. Yeah. My mom, she always said only 30 minutes of TV a day. Um, and so I would always watch Wild and Crazy Kids or any Nickelodeon show. Um, and then like, of course, my dad would like throw on the Red Sox game. But we would never eat on the couch with a TV dinner. Right. So – um, I know the concept of a TV dinner and I, and I distinctly remember a few times eating a TV dinner where you kind of pull the, pull the plastic cover off of it and then the steam pops out. Um, and so this, this sort of, uh, concept for the quick fire, it definitely harkened back to some of the moments in my childhood, but I wouldn't say I was a veteran of TV dinners. Oh, we had no TV limit. And buy house, um, and there was there was much syndication going on between four and six when I didn't have like a activity or something. Like, and, and Atlanta was a great market to grow up in because you got the Jeffersons at four and five, little Good Times at four thirty, which then was replaced on the CBS affiliate with Alice, a big popular one in my house. And then as like early eighties going to mid eighties, it becomes a Family Ties rerun house, along with Silver Spoons, by the way. Uh, big Ricky Schroeder. Uh, that was a that was a four thirty. I think on the I don't think on the NBC affiliate maybe. But you know there was no limit in our house. Like Stacy and I watched just a shit ton of television. Like we're both very. I think we've both seen every Jefferson's episode ever produced. Um, probably right there with Alice. But yeah, th- there there was no limit. We we we, so we, which, we soaked that shit up. Which of these uh, – so they gave out Gilligan's Island, MASH, Sopranos, uh, Flintstones, uh, uh, Sesame Street, Seinfeld, Cheers. Am I missing one? Like is there no. one – is there one that you watched more so than any of those other shows that you would have been excited to get? I mean you can go Italian with Sopranos and it's a really easy interpretation. Uh, I mean Cheers is good for a quick fire because like again, beer food, right? Like – or I'm sorry, bar yeah. food. Yeah. Uh, you know, Flintstones is hard to. It's like you got to kind of do the the brontosaurus rib. Like you know, I don't, I don't know any other. And then Seinfeld diner food with Tom's, or or you get you can go a little New York deli, make a knish. I don't know if you can make Maybe a knish a in, in thirty. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like like I, I you know Gilligan's, you can do anything fishy. So, but I, I think the key is, yeah, I mean. To me, Sopranos gives you a pretty wide berth, whereas Flintstone gives you a pretty narrow berth. Yeah, and it's pretty clear that Kevin didn't really watch The Sopranos because um, he was just like, eh, just you know, doing the whole family spread thing. Um, I I felt bad for Jen here because when you get Flintstones, you want to get the big old hunk of meat on the end of a bone, right? A big right. old ribeye or a tomahawk, like, and or she turkey goes into leg the or something. Yeah. One of those state fair turkey legs. Yeah. And she goes into the pantry and they don't stock anything with a big old bone on it. So I felt bad for her on that because if you're top chef, you want to stock, you know, you don't want to give them uh, a challenge and then not have any of the ingredients on purpose. And unless it's part of the, the 
conceit of the challenge. So right off the bat, Jen is just working from, you know, behind on the scoreboard. Well, also, I mean, like roulade is this year's risotto, right? Like that's sort of, you don't want anything to do with that. Who, you know, who was it that got, uh, Robin almost got sent home for her roulade or did she get, no, that was the, that was the ash tenderloin episode and, and Robin almost like, skated, you know, by the hair of her chinny chin chin with, uh, with her right. roulade. So like roulade is just a kind of a loser. You don't want to do roulade. Kiss of death. Kiss don't of do death. it. Don't do it. Don't do it. And so, you know, I don't know who this judge is. Paul Bartolotta. Do you know anything about the, this chef? I guess. Never heard of him. Ju- Never heard of him. <laughs> Get him out of here. Uh, I liked him. I thought he was a pretty good host. Um, he was fun. Um, and, you know, my, Brian goes with the Korean uh, meatloaf. Um, and what I found fascinating about this one, you know, a playoff of MASH during the Korean War. What I found fascinating about this, uh, Kevin – if you'd known nothing about Brian Voltaggio after this and the whole quick fire curse, I would have thought he won. Like this dish, I thought he was going to finally win the quick fire. And I was so excited for him. But then I got this moment of like, yeah, well, Tom, we know he never wins the damn quick fire. So why are you getting your hopes up? Yeah, I mean, they like that tart to tan. The meatloaf was a winner. By the way, I was kind of, I mean, how old is Voltaggio slash Brian or comma Brian? Because mash that was another rerun special um that was a total syndication hit my parents love mash yeah my dad loved mash everybody loved mash Uh, my house monday night was sacrosanct you could not bug my father you couldn't bug my father during mash on monday nights and then you couldn't bug my father hill street blues on tuesday night and that was just his thing he asked for 90 minutes a week of peace and that was it like you couldn't come into the bedroom where you like to watch tv Mm. At, nine, at 10 o'clock on Tuesdays, and I think nine was MASH on uh, Mondays. So Brian knowing about MASH is pretty impressive. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It, it's, I mean, when was Brian? How old is Brian Beltaggio? How old is Brian Beltaggio? I would say he's 45. One of those guys, you know, 44. Okay, so he's he's old enough to like wow. have caught MASH in, in syndication. Okay, okay. okay. But uh, looking good for 44, by the way. Based yeah. on not this season, obviously, 17. I mean, there he's like 32. Yeah, so he's – um, so he only comes in second. He was in the top. Um, Kev wins with his uh, family spread. Um, they really liked his dish. I don't really have much of an opinion on the other ones. I mean, Mike Isabella did sausage and peppers with Seinfeld. He's never watched – Seinfeld before I'm not a Seinfeld fanatic like some of uh, our friends and colleagues Kevin but I would at least know a couple things to pull from that you know that show to be inspired from but Mike does not Um, he doesn't finish in the bottom Jen and Robin finish in the bottom and Michael Voltaggio brings in the chicken parm which I know he's going for bar food or pub food, Kevin, but chicken parm doesn't really feel like bar food to me. Like a fish and chips or a burger or a French onion soup. Chicken what about wings, those like mozzarella all- sticks dipped in tomato sauce, which is kind of your two-thirds of the way to parm? Yeah. No, I'm, I'm with that. But a chicken parm, I don't. I feel like that's a deli. I don't feel like that's a bar. That's more like, a, like an Italian. Yeah, yeah, like an Italian sub. Uh, 
you know, I, I think if you're going Seinfeld, my favorite food-oriented Seinfeld, and like you, I'm I'm not encyclopedic in my knowledge of Seinfeld. It was on while I was in college, so I just like didn't have a TV. But but I like the one where Costanza like he 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 sees the uneaten eclair in the trash can, right? Purely uneaten, not even mingling with the other trash, and just feels like it's completely acceptable to reach in there and get the eclair. I mean, um, that would have been a great dish is something inspired by that moment on the right. show. Can you do an eclair in 30 minutes <laughs> or an hour, hour, hour? I think it's an hour. Like that, that's right. the question or, because I think the eclair, although then you're up there and I'm going to guess that Padma is not encyclopedic in her yeah. Seinfeld knowledge. Cause that's the only problem is for Seinfeldians, it will be brilliant. But if you're trying to describe the Georgia Stanza's eclair episode, like I think you're probably if you're explaining you're losing as they say. Yeah, I also yeah, if, if you have to kind of explain the punchline, you already lost the audience, right? But I do think that sometimes on Top Chef when there's like a personal anecdote or a very vivid, very specific memory that draw you draw inspiration from, I think the judges appreciate that. And um on this you know, one that, that's I, not very I, personal. That's like that would be like <laughs> you know, I hadn't seen my mom in 14 years and she really loves eclairs. And there it was. Like, I mean, you, that would have to be the term of that. I don't think they're going to go just because you like uh, an erotic episode of Seinfeld, which is truly one of my favorites because that is so something I would do. Like, like to watch a perfectly good eclair just get thrown away. I mean, I got to tell you, I've certainly had the urge when I like go to Sugarfish or sushi and like people leave untouched pieces. Like, and I'm walking by and they've already, they're getting up and leaving. It's like, I mean, practically speaking, there's no utility to throwing that shit out. And it's like, not like it's like a half eaten steak. Did you ever work as a server? Yeah, I did. In Santa Fe, New Mexico. Did you ever eat anything off a plate that was, uh, you cleared from the kit, cleared from the dining room and then go back into the kitchen. I certainly did that a whole bunch. Okay. Like I'm I'm maybe a, a rogue French fry, maybe like, I don't recall. Did you? Yes. Oh, yeah. There was this place called Bravo in Fairfield, Connecticut. And I would t- – like there was this amazing dish of like calamari with some hoisin sauce or something like that. And- calamari and hoisin sauce? Oh, um, yeah. It's like fried, fried calamari, would, right? Yeah, okay. And they would, they would sprinkle this hoisin sauce on top and then, you know, it would go out. And 99% out, out, of, a, out of all of the dishes that went out, they would just get gobbled up. There was not even a speck of fried, uh, you know, crust from the calamari. But on those rare occasions where you find the golden ticket, where there's a few le- leftover of the uh, the calamari, and I'm not, I'm a much bigger fan of the uh, tentacle calamari rather than the discs of the calamari. I don't know how you feel about that, the rings of the calamari. Oh, your ring but versus if, uh, tentacles? Yeah, I'm, I'm very much team tentacle. And, um, and so when those were left, a little few left over on the dish, I would just pop them in my mouth. Like they were just Tic Tacs, you know? So I, I'm a big fan of that move. I don't know how we got off on that, but it, Barf it. this, Barf it. this is what, this is what the show is all about. So elimination challenge, Kevin, what'd you think about it? Well, I mean, I think, look, vegetarianism always, I mean, either it's interesting or it's not like in one respect, you don't get to see them, you know, work their strengths and, so that was sort of like, uh, you know, uh, you know, I, I, I missed the protein in a challenge, right? On the other hand, you know, Natalie Portman's charming. It is interesting to see there's a certain adaptation a challenge like that requires. And I think it's important. It's an important skill for a Top Chef contestant. So you want to push them every third or fourth episode to really adapt. 
And I, I think this was one of those. So, I mean, generally speaking, I'm okay. Yeah. I, um, I hear you. I, I, I feel like when they announced that they're just going to go take over Tom's restaurant, craft steak in Vegas, it's like, there's gotta be something more to this. Cause this doesn't seem like at, th- at this late in the game that there was, there was enough there. Um, and then of course, Natalie Portman is brought in as the surprise. Right. Well, by and- the way, like in the words of Tom Colicchio, what's the challenge? <laughs> yes. If you haven't listened, that is a reference to our sit down with Tom Colicchio full episode you can go listen to on our Twitter feed or sorry, our YouTube at Count the Dings or just uh, just scroll back from the Pack Your Knives feed. We did a whole sit down with Colicchio and that was one of the things we, we pitched and he said, what's the challenge? I mean, what's the challenge? So on this one, the challenge is plot twist. Going to a steakhouse, not allowed to cook meat. And once again, Jen on this episode gets screwed. She wants to do um, eggplant and she can't do the eggplant that she wants because Eli also wanted to do eggplant. But after that, but even before that, she wanted to do morels, mushroom morels. And uh, two others were doing morels. And if I'm Jen and Kevin's going to do morels and Robin's doing morels, guess what? I don't care if they've done it. I'm going to do it better than them. Maybe it's a matter of scarcity that they're going to take it. I just don't have any morels left or I'm going to get the runt of the litter of the, of the morels. But if I'm Jen, I'm just going to do the morels because I know that's my first pick, right? Yeah. So a big surprise for me, at least in this elimination challenge is nobody does pasta or risotto. Now I know risotto, obviously, I don't know if it had its reputation yet Mm. in season six, but pasta, like it's such an easy way to do vegetarian food that is savory, tasty. You know, a constant theme of the judges was, oh, this is a real dish. You can make a meal out of it. And I'm just shocked that you had seven chefs and not one chooses pasta. I'm not criticizing. I mean, the, the ones that hit, hit. But I, I just think that for those who are struggling, it would have been. And again, not everybody makes pasta. It is something. But but I was True. shocked. Shocked. You know, it didn't occur to me, Kevin. Like I, I did not, I did not think about doing pasta in that place. But it makes all the sense in the world. The showrunners might have said you can't do pasta because none of them did it, right? And they didn't go to the Whole Foods, right? This was a what's in the pantry. So there might right. now, but you can with flour. I mean, the people who make pasta, we're talking about flour, we're talking about egg, you know. But I mean, it's just I, I was very surprised, and you know, especially Jen in this, she is the sauce master. I mean, you do a ravioli of like, you know, butternut squash or or even that eggplant if you really like, – like there are things you eh, – maybe not eggplant, but there, there are a lot of things you can do obviously with, with veggie pastas. I mean and, and, a, and a great sauce and you're done. You're How right? about Eli who's never one to, you know, mince words or anything like that? He just goes, yeah, you know, in the confidence of, you know, like-minded people, I would say that vegetarians are lower – people <laughs> that was that was a, a very 26 year old chef to say um uh, but you know i appreciate his candor and, and that's all you asked for so uh yeah. yeah is there is there is there a dish kevin a uh, vegetarian dish that instantly pops into your mind when if you if someone says "Ooh, uh we're having veggie we're having a veggie meal tonight is there something that you're like i hope it's this i guess it's pasta for you no no i mean I have to be careful in the pasta, uh, just you know, carbs. But I'll tell you one of the things I like. And we were just talking about it is like a really good eggplant parmesan. 
guilty pleasure veggie food. Like I just love. Mm. What's interesting here is there is a great vegan Japanese restaurant down in uh, little Tokyo uh, called Shojin. And if all vegan food was this tasty, I would be vegan. Mm. It is so good. But, but you know, that, you know, I love, a, I love a good eggplant Parmesan. I, I, uh, you know, I, I'll, I'll take a meat and three without the meat. You know, I love little Southern vegetables. Uh, but yeah, that, that's basically it. Hello, listener. Guess who's back? It's me, Anthony Mays, your favorite butcher turned podcast producer. And I'm here to talk to you about Butcher Box. Butcher Box is the most convenient way to get high quality meat and seafood that you can trust delivered straight to your doorstep, free shipping, vacuum sealed packaging. It's ready to go right then. It's ready to pop in the freezer. You get exclusive member deals and a variety of high quality cuts at an amazing value. Going to the grocery store can be a huge pain. You're usually in a rush at an inconvenient time. You're waiting in line at the meat counter. You're taking a number. Maybe this place doesn't have a number. You're jostling with fellow customers. You're trying to get that ribeye that you want or that nice piece of salmon. Maybe the butcher that you're dealing with has a bad attitude or something. I don't know. That was never me. I promise. But maybe it happens. Butcher Box takes all of that out of the picture. You are always prepared with meat and seafood in the freezer, and you're not going to find quality for this price anywhere else other than ButcherBox. So sign up at butcherbox.com slash dings, D-I-N-G-S, and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. You can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com dings and use code dings, D-I-N-G-S, to choose your free for a year offer, plus get $20 off your first order. Yeah, I um, I let's just start with Mike. Isabella here at leaks. I don't know. I could, I don't know if I could pick leaks out of a lineup. Like if I was eating a bunch of dishes, veggies, I don't think I could pick leaks out. That's probably just me being an, un, uh, a novice eater maybe, but that, that choice by Mike Isabella was very, very confusing. Well, also because leaks, like they're kind of filler. I mean, look, I'm sure some chef would say you haven't had my leaks, but but, so they look like almost when you see them at the farmer's market, kind of like green onions, but a much bigger white kind of, it doesn't, you know, like, okay. so, so that's kind of what they look like. Uh, and they're just kind of filler. Like I don't, that is not a meal. I'm just trying to think like roasted leeks. And again, maybe I'm wrong, but it's just kind of in the root vegetable, like turnips. Yeah. Turnips are fine. I have a turnip recipe that I make with a little citrus and stuff, but like it's turnips. And that's how it's I not a made events. Yeah, it's just not. I, I, I was I was shocked at the beginning because it just it seems like trouble. Like the ceiling on a leek dish is so low. Yeah, and um, you know he thought he was gonna cut it into discs, almost like a, a scallop, and he ended up just kind of boiling the shit out of it, and it looked awful. It looked like even even the overhead shot, Kevin, of the overhead shot of the pot that he cooked it in. I was just like, who wants to eat that? And then he presented it on the plate and it was it was not not happening. Um, and right away when he decided he was going to go with leeks, I was like, this 
is not going to end well. Uh, he has all the confidence in the world, but he he does the leaks, and I just I I didn't really think that was a smart move. And of course, you know, um, Robin decides she's going to do a billion things. I honestly, in my notes, I just have it written down. Lots of things happening. Don't even know what this dish is. She just doesn't have a perspective. You know, you can go up and down the list of chefs, and they all have. you know, a perspective, right? You know, Michael Moltaggio wants to sort of, wants to reinvent. He wants to deconstruct and reconstruct. He is fascinated with what you can do with substances. You know, Brian Moltaggio, you know, likes to play with texture, probably a more mild version of, of, of Michael, but, but that restraint and structure certainly, you know, gives him something, you know, you know, Jen, we talked about just kind of just, Fresh, simple ingredients, kind of an East Coast Suzanne going. Uh, great with sauces, classical. And, and you can go down and like Robin, it's sort of like, like I don't know, what is the pers- what is the point of view? Like what I, is the arterial voice there? Like I don't know. Just talking. That's it. Like I don't know. I don't know what hers is. And, and she says, I don't know whether she is vegetarian or that she is like – eats a lot of vegetables like that's her diet but this just seemed like she had uh an idea of what ingredients she wanted to use and then ooh, there's some fresh garbanzos Ooh, there's this and then there's that i'm gonna use it all and then she just throws it all in and like fresh garbanzos that sounds really good like again haven't had that sounds really good um and yet there was like a bunch of different things on the plate so um do a duo of she was beets g- with, you know, with the tremula. I mean, that's a that's a decent dish if you execute the beets. Beets are substantial. Do them two ways. I know it's, you're not supposed to do duos, but I think when the vegetable, it's a different story, and you want to get something. Like I, I just like you could have done that. You could have done that. You could have done just a good beet dish with a really good, you know, tremula, and and maybe you know some herbal, you know, something a component that, that, that sort of works with the North African. Right. I mean, I, I don't know. Right. Just like, what the hell? Yeah. I mean, fresh garbanzo beans, just because they're there and you're interested and they're, you're curious doesn't mean you use them. Mike Voltaggio, once again, does a dish that's so Michael Voltaggio, very confident in his abilities, the concepts, the the banana polenta that almost put, you know, half the judges in a, in a shock. Then you had uh, the asparagus done a couple ways. Um, conceptually execution. I mean, he's, he's a juggernaut. This dish definitely, you know, when we have the debates about Giannis versus LeBron and, and who's going to be the MVP of the NBA. And we just say, you know, LeBron is in normal years. He, it's a MVP caliber season. This dish by Michael Voltaggio was LeBron where it was like, you know what? MVP caliber dish, winning dish for Michael Voltaggio, um, and I, I feel him is that, you know, when he presented the dish, I kind of felt like if this tastes good, as, as good as it, is, as it looks, it has a cool story with the bananas and the polenta. Um, I thought he would run away with this. And then, you know, Kevin comes in with a dish that me personally, I would most like to eat. Yeah. I mean, it's very, I love, I love Mushrooms. Mushrooms are some of my favorite things in the world. Did, am I right that uh, Mike, you know, Voltaggio threw a little shade at Kevin there, right? 
Oh, for sure. I mean, I was surprised. I thought there would be at least mutual respect. Um, yeah, presentationally, Kevin's dish wasn't that. It was much more of a down-home dish. But, you know, I think there's an appreciation, especially, you know, with vegetarian. It, it's, you know, I mean, there is, you do, I, I think substance is something, and sustenance really is, is, is something you want because they are, they can be overly light, like you want them. And look, it, it, it works. And he won, um, by the way. And, and uh, you know, that, he, he got a twofer. He won, he swept. He swept the episode. Yeah, it's very rare that we have it this season where you sweep the episode. I'm not sure we've seen that, um, but it's it's hard to do, especially with this kind of talent on the board. And I feel bad for for Michael Voltaggio on, on some level that, you know, maybe his dish from a talent perspective, from a conceptual perspective, was actually more impressive than um, than Kevin's was, but you know what? Kevin's just tasted fucking good. And at the end of the day, you got to hit flavor. And it seemed like everyone on the table just loved eating that dish. And that's what it's all about. So Voltaggio, um, I get it, but when you're having a, a vegetarian meal, I'm not looking at like, Ooh, I want asparagus. Like that's not the move. I'm going to want a mushroom, whether it's a portobello steak or something like that. I love eating mushrooms. And so I thought it was really smart by uh, Kevin to just go get the morels, get the uh, hen of the woods and just go with a a very heavy, substantial mushroom dish that felt like, you know, you're eating a real protein. Um, And yeah. You know what dish I would have, um, I would have ordered on a menu. Which one? Eli's. That looks delicious. Eggplant confit. I mean, really, when eggplant gets soft, it is so pleasant. I mean, it might, for those who don't like mushy food, but if it still has a little form, like, you know what dish I love? You go to a lot of Chinese restaurants. It's just like that sticky eggplant with a slightly spicy garlic sauce, and it's just gummy. Um, and that viscosity is just great, and it's got flavor, and it's just so, like, I love the texture of that kind of eggplant. And it looked like it's mm. kind of what he you know, similar to what he was able to accomplish. And, you know, the cream lentils and radish salad, like that's just a good, I, I'm, I'm very partial to eggplant. And so like, that's a really good thing. Speaking of which, going back to Isabella, man, you're like, you got to like, why not do a met, you know, a mezza? Why not do a little, your own take on Baba Ganoush, your own take on Lebna, you know, some of those, like, you know, what's the one with the red peppers? Uh, what's it called? What's it called in the Armenian place? I, I but anyway, I'm surprised that would have been such in the style of what he does in, you know, what he did in, in Washington. Um, I, I was sure that's what he was going to do. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I it, it was one of those moments where I thought Isabella was talking a lot, talking a big game, and just everything that he actually did walking was just bad. And that this I've, I've been hard on Isabella with his Greek interpretations of a Greek salad, et cetera. But, you know, just from concept to execution did not work. And, and Eli, you're right. Looked like a very delicious dish. I'm actually going to go with Jen's preparation of the eggplant. I love a torched egg, eggplant, yeah. like a burnt eggplant, uh, some char on there. That's the kind of eggplant. I don't like a medium medium rare eggplant i like an oh, a torched eggplant what say you uh I, I certainly want it to be have that slight mushiness and, and preserve again yeah. like my that 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 
eggplant with garlic sauce is my favorite. I love baba ganoush though, but I also love achar. I really do. But I don't, mm-hmm. I'll be honest with you, those discs that people just throw on the grill at a barbecue, no appeal to me. Zero. Yeah, I'm with you. Zero. So judges table. Um, one last thing, you know, because Kevin won. And, and I do want to say this. And, and, and going back to that, I could have made that dish in 20 minutes. I'm of two minds about Michael Voltaggio. And, and this is general. It's not just about his, his you know, his barb on, on, on Kevin. Number one, my first reaction is, well, why didn't you? Why didn't you? Yep. You can make it in 20 minutes. Why didn't you? Okay. Number two, I also feel him. And, I, and this is not a knock on Kevin. You know, when Jay Leno got The Tonight Show and, you know, after his first couple of years, I think in a certain, a large segment of the comedy community, some of whom even kind of like Jay from Boston, you know, their whole point was like, what are you doing with it? Right? Like the idea is if you inherit the definitive late night variety show, late night talk show that you're supposed to play with the form, right? Like you're supposed to play with the form. Why do you even get into this business if you're just going to do a milquetoast version, a, a milquetoast interpretation of this form? And that was sort of their beef with Leno. I think everyone thought he was a pretty good guy. You know, it wasn't that he's terrible. It was just that you're not doing anything with it. Like you were given this gift. It is your responsibility as a comic to take forth the night show on NBC and bring it into the, you know, and, and you're supposed to evolve it like that, that ape thing with the five apes, you know, like, like, and, and I think what Baltagio is saying is what are you doing with it? And that is generally when he gets, when he gets kind of sassy, that's generally what he's saying, and I appreciate. Like, why would you get into the cooking business if you're not going to just completely go crazy? If you're not going to say, this is like, and I do appreciate it, but part of me was also, though, again, I could have made this in 20 minutes, then you should have. You would have won. Yep. Yep. And, um, you know, you got to give the people what they want, and, you, and they want a really tasty dish. And I think Michael Voltaggio's was probably very impressive. Technically, but in terms of just making you feel like you had a very satisfying meal, uh, I think Kevin wins. And you know what? He probably admits that. Like when if you're looking at the two dishes, he's probably saying that one's the Michelin three star uh, dish. And mine's probably just a really good dish. I'm maybe I'm I'm getting Kevin wrong here. But, you know, I um, I appreciated the uh, the the, you know, Brian Voltage didn't even we didn't even talk about well, his. he finished. It always, it's always a funny of the seven contestants left. You automatically know who finished fourth. You know who finished first, fourth, seventh. You generally know two and three. Like I think it's understood that yeah. Michael was second, Eli was third. It was kind of understood Jen was fifth and Robin was sixth. I you know and I so it is yes. Andrew. You get the standings, which you know I think you and I would be we would be much like we'd be much more satisfied if they kind of published the box score. <laughs> Yeah, we could do a, a point system that way. Um, but I think you're right. And Voltaggio was in the middle. It was it was Goldilocks. It was fine. Not, not too not too you know appealing, but also not too uh, boring or anything like that. So he was um, you know kind of this was not his his best episode. But if Kevin wins, Voltaggio's pissed off. Says he could have done it in 20 minutes. Then we get to the bottom. Robin, Jen. And Mike Isabella. 
Um, Robin kind of kept digging herself into a hole. And if anyone does herself any favors on, on the, at the judges table, Robin does not, she just keeps talking and yapping. And, um, you know, I thought Jen almost would get into a trap here by saying, you know, I I feel like I, I prove I belong. Uh, just give me another day. I thought Tom Kalika was going to jump all over that. Yeah. It's beneath her. She'd be like, oh, you, you just think you belong. Right. Um, And clearly he's unimpressed with with ambivalence about one's talent. Yeah. And I I adored Jen just saying, you know what? I get nervous in front of the judges. Yeah, I was super nervous. I'm nervous right now. My hands are shaking. And, uh, you know, I felt I felt so bad for serving those dishes. And I don't think it's really about the celebrity getting like spooked by uh, getting starstruck by Natalie Portman. I think this is probably just nerves is you work so hard. I think she cares so much about her food that she just she gets nervous up there. I totally get it. Um, and I I was kind of shocked that Isabella was the one who went home. I thought Robin was going to get sent home. Yeah. And knowing the beef between the two, um, I don't think I remembered, you know, watching this season initially. I don't think I remember that Isabella went home before Robin, but here we are. Have, you, have we ever had a season before or since with such a weak chef in the final six? Ooh, good question. So – I'm going to stand up for Robin here. Isabella says in his outro, basically on his way out, his exit interview, he's saying, you know, I guess I could be in the bottom eight times like like her. But you know what? Um, you know, I, I, I didn't. And she just goes off. Right. Robin has been in the bottom, th- bottom three, three times. Isabella had been in the bottom three twice. Does that include okay. uh, uh, quick fires? No. Does not include. It doesn't include getting. Okay. Put it out. Essentially, he was in the bottom and survived twice. She was in the bottom and survived three times. This isn't like, you know, lapping the field here. Like Robin, probably not the most qualified chef up there, right? But it ain't like she's, she was actually in the top like a couple episodes ago. Uh, and she's also won a quick fire. So I get it. She's probably the weakest link. But in terms of running up the score, she's so far behind everyone else. The stats don't point to the same conclusion. So Isabella, the I think the entire the interpersonal or his beef with Robin actually spoke louder in that moment than what the stats showed. Like she actually hasn't been as much of an underdog as, as you would think, just going by the standings. Yeah, yeah, he hadn't been setting it on on on, on fire um, since the beginning. Yeah, I, I'd forgotten that he was. This was not the season where. He really showed himself. I mean, you're right. He hadn't he hadn't performed enough to really earn that critique. But it's right. still interesting. I mean, she is. I just don't recall anybody who didn't at least have either creativity or technicality or sort of warmth to their food. You know, every once in a while, you get who is the guy who did like the gumbos from from southwestern Louisiana uh, a couple of years ago. God, who am I? I have no memory whatsoever. But, you know, like, 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 I, I think you either have to have like, like technicality, creativity, or sheer comfort. Like your food is just so tasty because like, and I don't think she has any of the three. And that's yep. sort of strange because it, it, it's, it's late in the day. It is late in the day. And she's also been expert at finishing second to last. Again, the classic, you don't have to run out the bear. You just have to outrun the other guy. She is outrunning the other guy. Oh yeah. Oh Yeah. 
Now, I want to ask you about this. Did you know that leeks don't have any protein? I mean, it's such filler. It doesn't surprise is that, me. It's like, is it like celery? Is it it's, just like it's, it's kind of uh, it's a slightly upgraded version of. I mean, at least celery has some practical application. It's a nice crunchy, you know, thing that you you can you know you can dip stuff, you know, using to dip stuff. But leeks have no practical application other than their filler. Other than if you want to bring a little water, like when I braise in the fall or winter, I will use leeks sometimes. Because they just kind of provide that, you know, it, it's almost it, it's almost going to be in, included in your um, in your mirepoix. I mean, even though that's technically not, I mean, celery's that, but like I'll use it then just for shits and giggles for changing stuff mm. up. But they are absolutely useless. They really are. So it got me thinking, Kevin. What vegetable has the highest content of protein? Ooh. And so I looked this up, and the top protein veggies, number one, Mm -hmm. lima beans. Oh, that makes sense. Lima beans have the highest uh, proportion of protein. I guess 11.6% is protein. Number two, If you want me to eat lima beans, I'll eat lima beans. From which movie in the 90s? You want me to eat lima beans? Uh, I'll eat lima beans. Not – my memory is shot just like yours. Cuba Gooding Jr. and Jerry Maguire. When he finally um, kind of realizes he's got to listen to Tom Cruise. You tell me to eat lima beans, yeah, I'll eat lima beans. Got to eat my veggies. Lima beans, soybean sprouts. Is that really a two? vegetable? I guess. Never heard. Green peas. That makes sense. Fabas? Spinach. What about fabas? Mm, interesting. Yeah, probably. Are they on the list? Is um, they are not on the list, but they might be like a, a cousin of one of these categories. I'm surprised about spinach, Tom. That's a surprise. Kind of leafy. Spinach, yep. sweet corn, asparagus, artichokes, Brussels sprouts, mushrooms, broccoli. Thought mushrooms would be higher on that list, but those are the top ones. And at the bottom, you have, you know, probably leeks. But it's, I, I did not know that about Lima beans, but that is your uh, Haberstadt big number for the for this week's episode of Pack Your Knives. You learn that lima beans has lots of protein in it. Back to the show. Um, I wanted to – one last thing before we get into Isabella. Um, Natalie Portman had the line of the show. When she's reviewing or talking about my, uh, Mike Voltaggio's dish, she goes, who is his dealer? And does he want more clients? That was awesome. That was great. Drug um, humor. I thought Natalie was, yeah, it was a little weed humor. Yeah. That was good. Um, yeah. uh, I'm Natalie surprised they Portman. haven't had Harold and Kumar on. Yeah. That would be yeah, a fun that challenge. Good. Mm-hmm. I mean, they've had um, like, they've had stoner food adjacent challenges, but they've never really embraced it. I wonder with the legality changing across the country if that will change okay so kevin let's talk about mike isabella the where are they now um mike isabella edition and we've gotten a couple people on on twitter throughout the season being like hey what did you guys think about mike isabella and are you going to address it well here it is the story is that mike isabella after he left the show in 2018 um there was a washington post big story about a former manager had alleged 
sexual harassment, extreme sexual harassment from Mike Isabella and a culture at work at his empire, a $30 million empire of restaurants. I believe he opened 11 restaurants uh, in like just a couple of years sprawling in and around DC area. Um, A lot of those restaurants were apparently in the reporting from Washington Post were understaffed. Uh, There were a lot of business issues with Isabella's empire. And then on top of that, he was swept up in the Me Too movement that I think, you know, Mario Batali, um, other, other chefs of public fame had been, you know, engulfed in this. And Mike Isabella was one of them. Now, in 2018, the story comes out and then he has to um, closed down several of his restaurants and he's on his way back. But I think the, the, the thing I want to ask you about, Kevin, is, you know, after reading Anthony Bourdain's book about, you know, his rise through uh, kitchens in New York City, I believe it was the 90s. Was it the late 80s and early 90s or whatever it is? There was just a lot of, of misogyny, of homophobia, of just the the – Vocabulary in the kitchen was such that you wouldn't be caught hearing within a mile of church, right? Um, so, you know, this is one of those industries that um, I feel like eventually this was going to catch up to them. Yeah, I mean, and you and I work in the sports space, and, and one of the things I think we've realized in is that there are certain industries and workplaces that regard themselves as exceptional. Right. And, and this is what I mean. So the teams we cover in practice, that's a workplace, right? That's a workplace. No different. Well, I'm going to say no different. That's a workplace. The way if you're an accountant, like your cubicle, the way if you're a lawyer, your office, whatever it is. Right. Um, and there one, there are things that you would never say in a, a law firm, a sales firm, whatever workplace you can imagine, a call center that can that liberties are taken in these exceptional industries or industries that regard themselves as exceptional, right? Like players on a basketball court at one thirty in the afternoon during practice will call each other. I mean, just on things that completely are outside the boundaries of professional life. And I think what you learn about the restaurant businesses up until very recently, I mean, like in the last year or two, people in the restaurant business thought of themselves as part of one of those exceptional industries whereby you hey we know this would not be permissible at a you know in a, in, a, in a traditional workplace but we are not a traditional workplace just like you hear about you know professional sports this is not a traditional workplace and by not traditional workplace there that's true in some respects it is a very unique workplace but the, it does that exceptionalism is internalized to the point where people feel like they can do things they shouldn't do right like they can behave in ways you know because it's the kitchen and in the it's kitchen, of people trust. yell oh, right. and say, yeah. right, like, but, no, but also just beyond the circle of trust, like, you yell, motherfucker, you just get in somebody's face because there's 25 tickets and, and, right, like, so there's this environment that compels people to believe. I do not have to play by the rules in terms of decorum, in terms of what's appropriate, in terms of respect for whether it's women, whether it's sexual minority, whatever it is. And I think that's caught up. And, and Isabella, to me, clearly, you know, by certain conduct, certainly got caught up in that. He was somebody who regarded the workplace in a restaurant as exceptional and that I wouldn't do this. 
I wouldn't behave this way in a professional firm. But I will because it's the kitchen mm-hmm. because it's like our business, Tom. Like 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 what a player can get away with calling another player on the practice court. And that, that, that this is their practice court. And I think it starts – and again, you talked about Kitchen Confidential. You talked about um, you know all kinds of reports. And people – look, we know people who work in the restaurant business. It is – you know, exceptional. However, what we're doing is we're narrowing the definition of exceptionalism and no longer can you, like misogyny is no longer an exception because you work in an exceptional environment. Right. And that's clear. And it's, and it's, it's happening in these exceptional businesses. Right. And you look at Bourdain's book, that was like the nineties, right? That's two decades ago. And this is 2018. And some of the allegations that uh, that the former manager of one of his restaurants were the, the accusations like it's it's a different time right and it seemed like this has been going on for at least well look put it this way the the comments that he made during this episode or this this season of top chef definitely was raising eyebrows when i was watching it being like wow that was um something i i just i I did not think would fly in 2020 if Top Chef was airing again. And maybe we're just coming off a Top Chef all-star season where you just didn't get a lot of that kind of color. It was very um, congenial. Like everyone was just playing by the rules and it was good because they all had great respect for each other. Now in this, in this season, Mike Isabella definitely had some comments that were um, that may have not seemed over the line in 2009 when it aired, but nowadays it definitely comes off very differently. And so Mike Isabella had 11 restaurants in the DC area and has just about cratered all of that um, through the business side, which I think we've talked about on the show too, whether it's this season or last season is just what, what if you're a chef and you find some success do you just keep expanding, expanding, expanding and spread yourself so thin? Um, and maybe part of the stress of opening up all these restaurants, you just kind of, uh, you lose it a little bit. And I think he lost control um, of his business in what seemed to be a culture in his restaurants and he's paying for it. Um, and so when when we look back on this season and Mike Isabella, he comes back in later seasons on, on top chef. Um, but it, it does, I mean, he was quite a character on the show and a heel in some ways, an antagonist. Um, but I did, I did notice that Jen Carroll, when Mike Isabella was voted off, I mean, she gave him a big old hug and to the point where Gail was you know taken aback a little bit about how sad they were to see Mike Isabella leave, and you could see Gail like clutching her chest, like wow, um, they really really cared about Mike Isabella, and so you know I think there you know when you look at Kevin Gillespie or Robin or whoever it is that had their their moments with Mike Isabella throughout the show, um, he was a character, uh, and in a where are they now sense. I don't really know where Mike Isabella is now. He's on Twitter. He's on Instagram. Um, I believe he's opening or consulting with a restaurant in Sarasota, Florida, obviously not in the DC area where he made his bones um, in the industry, but yeah. So Mike Isabella goes home. Um, Robin is still on the show. And obviously that, that ticks off uh, Mike Isabella on his way out. But um, 
Kevin, I just don't think she's long for this world. Top Chef, the bear is at some point gonna gonna eat her up to use the parlance of Kevin Arnovitz, right? For Tom Haberstroh, this is Kevin Arnovitz, and this is Hack Your Knives.